Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by author and journalist Mark Peasing. Mark specialises in writing about technology, culture and everything in between for some of the biggest names in media and has recently published his first book, N4 Down, The Hunt for the Arctic Airship Italia. This book tells the story of the largest polar rescue mission in history, the desperate race to find the survivors of the glamorous Arctic airship Italia, which crashed near the North Pole in 1928. I was intrigued by this book and decided to give it a read. And having enjoyed it immensely, I invited Mark to join me as a guest. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. But before we go to Mark, I want you all to take a moment to listen to another independent podcast which is produced by a colleague of mine, Shashati Bashu, called How To Be. It's a great podcast series and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I do. Welcome to How To Be with me, Shashati, as your timid presenter, guiding you through life's tricky topics and skills by reading through the best books out there, covering topics ranging from mental health and well-being to understanding the world around us better through interviewing authors on the given subject. I've spoken to at least 40 authors from award-winning editor of The Good Immigrant, Nika Schukla, to The Year of Living Danishly and How To Be Sad author, Helen Russell, on what it means to be human and about the human condition. Each episode is around 30 minutes long, describing the most important information from at least two to three books, hearing a snippet from the author's point of view, a summary of the advice, as well as the community at large, so we get a great overview of each subject, packed full of really important information and life advice. From intersectionality, resilience, motivation, allyship, grief, as well as much, much more, I look forward to hearing from you and welcome to this journey of learning. Mark, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining me on the Comfortable Spot podcast. Hi, Ken. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. When I read your book, I said, we have to get this man on. (laughs) (laughs) Keep talking like that. That's brilliant. We love that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just, it's actually, you know, this is the wonderful thing about Twitter. You know, we're all worried at the moment about Twitter with the, with the fact that Elon Musk has taken over. But I think, you know, um, as a, as a source for finding really interesting stories, really really interesting people, uh, it's a great source for that. Yeah, definitely it is. I mean, the the people you can connect with uh, and the ideas you can be exposed to in the books you can see, it was brilliant, really. Yeah, you can switch off, you know, and I I do that a lot. I get a lot of, you know, the right-wing stuff, as we all do, and I just block it because it it irritates you if you try and dwell on it, you know. So I try and use Twitter nowadays as a source for people like yourselves and that I can get information and read books that they're they're producing and writing. And this is where I came up with yourself because you just popped up on a colleague's um tread and i went okay this sounds really interesting and oh, i think you good. had a picture of your book so i said okay i'm gonna have a look yeah. at that that's exactly the type of book that i would be interested in and of course we're going to go into detail in the book uh, later on as we're talking but i wanted to ask you initially um you're, you're a journalist and i'm just curious your role as a journalist from from what i know it seems to be uh, quite independent and i'm just wondering how did that start yeah i, I mean i've always been a freelance journalist i mean i've worked uh I've been a regular contributor to a number of sites 
like like what the Wired and the Independent and stuff in the past, and now BBC Future. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, so as I went to university, did lots of media stuff at university, students' newspapers. Kind of lost, uh, kind of took a different direction afterwards. <laughs> I wanted to become a, a priest or kind of a vicar in the, in the wow. Church of England. Yeah, so I explored, I explored my uh, what's it called vocation for a mm-hmm. couple of years, and then kind of. Uh, kind of wandered back into kind of I suppose how would I describe it I kind of I made it back into what I wanted to do which is kind of write and write books journalism all that kind of stuff took a while your focus is a lot on technology and now I have to ask you a question now seeing that you've told me about your 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 almost a different road is do you find a conflict at all in that because I presume you still have faith no, no the the reason I I didn't pursue yeah one of the the reasons I didn't pursue my kind of path into the church was I kind of lost my faith is a strong word but I I certainly kind of I suppose I certainly had enough doubts about the church as an institution that I I didn't I didn't pursue it so I've had no conflicts at all and by that stage you know I was having problems believing Mm -hmm. uh some of the things I was told anyway so no that hasn't really been you know a conflict I guess uh no it hasn't been at all really Mm, but you do have a massive interest in technology where did that come from was that something that you had like as a boy yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I mean, I think one of the hardest things about doing this book is, is suddenly kind of in publicity, people start wanting to talk about your past. Where did this book come from? And mm. as a journalist, I'm used to not really, you know, talking about myself in that way. So that is, uh, that's been quite interesting. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I kind of, I, I, I grew up. My dad was an engineer in the BT post office, and he kind of started off from a really poor background, worked his way up. You know, one of the classic stories. Uh, my brother be- became an engineer. He's a research scientist for what was what was Philips. I can't remember what it's called now in digital technology. So, uh, and I just loved planes. And I remember reading books about planes, wanting to fly, dreaming about flying. So, all, all my life, I was kind of brought up in that kind of uh, yeah, envir- environment, really. So, it was, a, it was a very natural thing to want to talk about, want to write about. Now, I think what we should do is we should start talking about your book because we've got so much to cover through and, you know, I don't want to lose anything on this because I was so fascinated by the read. Now, speaking of fascination, uh, why are people fascinated by polar stories? Because this is the genesis behind N4 Down. So can you get into that a little bit and explain, in your own opinion, why you think polar stories have this certain appeal to them, even a hundred years later after the yeah. initial wave of adventure? Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's a really good question. I think it's because the extremes, I mean, it's one of the most extreme places, you know, whether Antarctica or the Arctic, they're the most extreme places on the planet or some of the most extreme places on the planet. And you're putting kind of people who are quite, you know, you can identify with, you know, in these awful situations with the technology of the day. So it's a real kind of sense of, Real A, you've got a brilliant story, but also B, you've got a sense of what would I do in those situations, which is quite different, I think, from sci-fi, you know, where you can have similar stories, but I mean, because sci-fi is not of this world and it perhaps in the future or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I guess, you know, it's not quite as real, I would say, but perhaps someone's going to shoot me down for that. So When I was reading your book, the one theme that came through the book that I was feeling was a sense of... Sometimes science can't get you out of this because you're living in nature and nature is the boss. And no matter how, there's no, you know, kind of quick fix to try and help yourself. If you're lost, you're lost. If you can't reach an island by foot, you're lost. And I think this is the one thing that your book mm. seemed to portray was that there isn't, you know, sometimes science can't be the answer. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, there's, there's, 
uh, well, especially in that situation where you're robbed of all the tools and, and there's no other solution. And it is very much a kind of, yeah, a kind of the primal ordeal struggle, isn't it, against the environment, nature, your psychology, you know, and in that situation, there's no good. I mean, it's the same now, isn't it? You, know, you hear stories of people trapped in the wilderness. There's no phone reception. Your phone smashed. There's no way of reaching help. It's really battle of your physical physical strength and also your mental strength as well. I think that's, that's I think, what comes out of, of N4 Down really is the importance to look at your kind of mental strength and how easy it is to lose it in those situations, I think. Let's talk about the premise of the book. So can you explain to our listeners who haven't come across the book yet, what is the story behind N4 Down? Okay, I mean, the story, uh, story is basically in 1928, uh, an airship crashes uh, near the North Pole, about 500 miles away. Uh, about half the crew are, are, are kind of are, are thrown onto the ice uh, and the other half are kind of float away in the envelope of the airship, uh, never to be seen, never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the people who, who are on the ice face, uh, I think it's about a two month struggle to survive on the sea ice, which is brutal because the sea ice is really cold. It moves all the time uh, or can move all the time. Uh, and you expose the elements. I think they had a small, only had a small tent uh, for shelter. So, uh, so it, it was a terrific story of kind of hubris, big tech of the time, big egos, kind of political rivalry, geopolitics, fascism, everything thrown in. Really, the main character behind the book, who is real, of course, um, yeah. he was an Italian, and this uh, this whole operation was you know, uh, flying the flag for fascist Italy at the yeah. time under Mussolini, wasn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. I, I mean, it's a part of, I mean, it's part of, the, of, our, of our history, which we've forgotten, presumably because of what happened to fascist Italy during the war and so on. I mean, it's not forgotten in Italy, of course, but in kind of Britain and America and Ireland. But, uh, you know, it, it is that, you know, aviation was, wasn't was just a form of transport in the 1920s as a way for regimes to legitimise their, their rule, is a way for them to promote their advancement and the modernization of the economy. Airmen were like the kind of, I mean, this is a bit cliche, they're like the superhero or the astronauts, if not superheroes, you know, you know, of the day, Mussolini and Antonio Balbo, who's another character in the book who's kind of, uh, nobody is kind of a nemesis, you know, you know, all trained to be pilots because it is, it, this is the, these were the people to emulate. And I really love the term uh, aeronaut, uh, which has kind of fallen out of use, you know, but this is how so many of these people were described at the time, were aeronauts. And I love that combination of the air and space. And I, I think that really sums up how they were seen. Yeah, and I think what we've forgotten is, is, uh, is how successful the Italians were at aviation in the 1920s into 30s, how they were leading the way in a number of fields, uh, you know, and how their pilots constantly set records. I mean, Talio Baba called these guys the record men. I mean, he didn't like them because they were, had obviously, had, you had to have a lot of uh, ego. But, you know, the Italians were setting records, you know, making headlines all around the world. And there was also big Italian populations in in countries like America, Brazil, Argentina, Australia, you know, who wanted, you know, who were eager for all this news. And the main character, Umberto Nobili, this is one of the most unknown heroes. I mean, I didn't hear of him before this book. And yet, yeah, his legacy seems to have lasted. It outlasted the fascist Italy, which yes. was a positive, and which he was very lucky in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you know, when you, as you go through the book, he was constantly under threat of losing his job, losing his reputation, or losing his life. Yeah. Yet absolutely. the man managed to still do amazing things. 
and it must have taken great stamina and of course this is what we're looking at aren't we when we look at people who want to go on these polar expeditions mm. you have to be of a different breed don't you especially in that time yeah yeah i, mean, I think you had to all polar explorers have it have i think something that's very similar is an obsession to go back to the ice i mean i felt that you know i went up to svalbard which is 500 miles n- n- near the arctic n- near the north pole in the arctic circle uh to research the book and I mean, it so gripped my soul, really. I mean, I don't want to be, it's not just because of my Christian background, but, you know, it did grip, grip my spirit, my soul. So when I left, all I could think about was wanting to return. And and I can imagine, uh, you know, and that's a very minor scale. And I'd only been there for, for a relatively short time to research. So, you know, if I'd done an expedition, come away, I'd imagine, got the glory, I'd imagine you just wanted to go back. I mean, there's something that really calls to people, I think. And I can, I can see why they keep wanting to go back and, keep wanting to do the you know achieve the next next triumph and break the next record uh there's something about the place i think there is another main character in the book um roald admundson um yeah. you know this man is the father of polar exploration yes. he beat scott to the south pole uh you know he he had built up a massive reputation before this story kicked mm. off and what i found about it was that it it was like um a passing of the torch a reluctant mm. passing of the mm. torch because Nobile's um his his way was to do it using technology, whereas the yeah. other guy he wanted to use it using stamina and what made him a, a very machoist type yeah. of way. I can do it on my own, or I'll do it without you sort of attitude. He didn't like the idea really of these of these elements of technology taking over. No, no, I, I think the con- and the contradiction about that was that he, he'd seen the you know even you know he'd he'd seen the potential in aviation for exploration. Uh, and he pioneered it, yet he didn't realise that's. Uh, I think this is the this is the kind of the the the, the tragedy. I think of Amundsen in a way was that he didn't see that this would also be, spell the end of of the explorers of, of his type, you know, as well. So he kind of foreseen it, but didn't see how it would change exploration. Also, I think it was obviously he was jealous, wasn't he? Because yeah. he wasn't capable of doing those things that the new. Uh, explorers were able to do not only did they have what he had but they also had this extra ability to create machines that would bring them there yeah i i mean i i think it was i wouldn't say nobody had what armison had i mean i think i mean in the case of nobody he got he, he kind of was found wanting i think ultimately uh but he they certainly had the smarts which armison had a different kind of smarts into kind of and they and they had the ability to build machines, to fly them, to operate them, to repair them, and and also, I I guess the big difference underlying all this it, it is a functional life. Amundsen was a really deeply un- dysfunctional person. I think we we would say that now, you know, and was uh, nobody was able to do this and have a wife and daughter. I know that's a kind of uh, hegemonic view of of the norms, but in, in the nineteen twenties. And he was able to have a more functional life with a relationship. So I, I, I think the technology also allowed you to have a slightly easier life than than the explorers in the past. Yeah, and I think Nobile's relationship um, is is key in this book because he had he had a certain empathy, didn't he? Yeah. Which sometimes yeah. the likes of uh, Adamson lost. Come here, I wanted to actually ask you about Scott and Shackleton and comparing their efforts and the situations that they were in against this this N four tragedy. Do you yeah. think Nobile's le- leadership, when it's compared to those, was it similar in some way, or were these a completely different breed altogether as well? I think that's a really good question. I, I mean, I, I think his 
I think there are elements of his leadership which were uh, rather like Scott's in the sense of uh, the, the determination to try new technology, which which Scott did. His use of the media, although Amazon used the media as well. His drive to succeed in a kind of slightly—I mean, other people will probably disagree with me—but slightly dogmatic approach to you know to the expedition and, and the way back. We're going to make it, and then we're going to come back, and perhaps. Again, I'm sure this is debatable, but perhaps not so much caring all the time about some of his crew. Whereas I think Shackleton was more cautious. Uh, what what struck me about about Shackleton in, in one of his attempts at additions was was that he 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 chose he chose to break it off rather than risk everything and, and his men's lives trying to trying to get I think it was to the South Pole, uh, and that struck me as very different from Nobly in a sense of why they crashed was he'd got to the he'd done his amazing amazing flight a few days before he was doing the shortest flight of his planned series of flights to the to the north pole the weather was bad but he got there and he had a choice of how to get back now and he had three choices basically one was to fly on to canada you know and you're going to wreck your airship and that was it but everyone would probably get there safely uh, he had a choice to take a very long way around and hopefully get back to Salvard, which is like 500 miles to the southeast, by doing a big circular route, which was risky, but was probably safer, safer. As you, and or he could, or he could leave his meteorologist and fly back into the storm and hope the storm uh, was going to clear. And I, th- and I think what struck me reading about Shackleton was how nobody kind of did the opposite. Opposite, he should really thought about his man I think more than he did at the time that's just my opinion other people will have, have different views and, and, I, and I think that's where he's a bit more like Scott I think yeah I think I'll agree with you on that because the other thing about it is that you look at Shackleton he knew the game was up you know he was he was well ex- yeah. very experienced in a sense to know that there isn't any point you're better off going home and starting again you know because he also knew that to be in this situation that they were in uh, with the with the ship um, eventually being stuck in the ice, he knew that that story alone was going to be good enough to get him another polar expedition. So he was realistic in that sense. I think what he his 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 motives changed. Whereas with Scott, was Scott? I think Scott was in the military, wasn't he? So maybe that mm, might have yeah. had something to do with it. It's kind of yeah, that must be, stiff that might upper be a, lip, a similarity, you know? wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I think there might have been something about that where there was a level of kind of you know uh, honor and sort of sense of dying, which was which was crazy when you look at it in modern terms. Uh, you know this story, as I said, it's it's a brilliant story. Um, the book is is fantastic. But when I when I read the book, I started obviously looking into it in more detail, and then we found out that there was a film called The Red Tent, which was a re- just a really unusual um concept in its own. I mean, this was mm. a film that was made as a uh, cooperation between Russian and Italian yeah. television and film. Now, this was the time of the Cold War as well, which is, I, I can mm. only think of it, you know, in the sense of how could this have happened? Um, and also, it had some really big actors like Sean Connery in it. Um, yeah. Now, I've been trying to get a copy of it. I got a copy of half the film, so I'm admitting it now that I've only seen a small portion of it. Yeah, it's on it's on YouTube, I think you can find it. The other YouTube. second half is not great. It's not really good to watch. <laughs> but um, I'm hoping, to, I, I, I've ordered off a colleague of mine, so I'm hoping to get uh, something in, in terms of watching the full movie. But what I found about the movie was it was, um, it didn't mince, you know, uh, the story. It went into quite, quite good detail about it. But I do think, to be honest, that this book um, should tell everybody that there has to be a film or at least a TV uh, sort of thing made about it. I'm sure you keep agree. saying that. Keep saying that. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it really is. It's such an incredible story. And I think this goes. Yeah, I think I think so too. I think so. And this is the thing that I 
feel has been a positive about the likes of Netflix is that they're also looking at stories around the world that are interesting because prior to this you and I would have as, as growing up we would mm. have been exposed to American stories or American yeah. you know endeavours uh, British endeavours in particular and maybe the odd French or you know whatever but when it comes to stories like this there's no way in, you know a company from the UK or America is going to make that story but I think nowadays um, there's just so much of this coming to light isn't there I mean it's the fact that so many brilliant stories like the M4 are just somehow being forgotten. So mm. why do we remember some polar disaster stories and not others, do you think? Because this has been forgotten. Is it a culture thing? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think when I was uh, when I was kind of writing the book and then particularly actually when I was doing, uh, preparing my first presentation because I, uh, I was lucky enough to uh, speak at the, well, virtually on Zoom at the Explorers Club in New York, which is kind of, you know, found in 1906 and one of the oldest, uh, very old American institutions. So I was lucky to be invited to speak kind of virtually at the club before the launch of the book. And when I was putting together the presentation for that, even I'd looked at these pages to do the research, it wasn't until I was thinking of them as a visual prop that it occurred to me that the New York Times had, I think it was four whole pages devoted to hit an earlier flight of no nobody in 1926 over the North Pole with, with Amundsen mm-hmm. in an air, another airship. Four pages, and it was seen as the... Uh, as one of the greatest aeronautical achievements of the age. And now everyone... Ha- Nearly everyone has forgotten it, and especially with his, you know, flight in 1928, flights in 1928. Uh, I mean, if I was going to be, if I was going to be cynical, uh, I mean, I, I would say it's understandable. It would be would be forgotten in. I mean, it's difficult for me to talk for for Ireland, but but in Britain, because the British weren't very involved, and they were kind of kind of watching, kind of watching from the sidelines. Uh, so, and the British have a very kind of ethnocentric attitude i think to things so you can see why the british would have forgotten that but in america i mean it's played out in america america was the stage for this and, and i guess it perhaps it just represents a kind of eclipsing of the italian diaspora you know which was in the 1920s very powerful very important so perhaps it reflects their i mean i, I, mean, I don't know enough about american society and politics so don't shoot me down on this but my perception you know, of the wane, slight waning of their influence. Mm. Uh, perhaps, it, perhaps it reflects that, or just so many other stories. But it, it is, it, it, uh, it, it is odd. But I think the same could be said for a lot of these amazing stories of aviation and exploration in the twenties and thirties. They all seem to be forgotten. We seem to remember polar exploration in in the nineteen hundreds. Perhaps Shackleton as one of the last ones, and we seem to forget a lot of the stuff that was happening in the twenties and thirties, other than obviously the disappearance of. Have we got this right? Amy Johnson is it Amy Johnson who disappeared. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and then and, and you know, and then we get in space. But there seems to be these twenty years where, of well, not perhaps fifteen years, fifteen twenty years of exploration by aviation that has been you know, more or less forgotten. Especially remember Lindbergh and things like that, but. Do you know what it is? Um, I'm wondering if it's a language thing as well. You know, the where like there these are Italians. Yeah. They it's just not a part, as you say, of Anglo kind of histor- history and Anglo folklore. You and I have talked before because we have an interest in this time, you know, between, as you say, the er- the early 1920s right up to the First World War, when it was like a, it was like the golden age of transport. 
And mm. we had all of these, as you say, new concepts being rushed along. I mean, it's it's kind of yeah. incredible when you think about it that, you know, they were flying from uh, Italy to, to Sao Paulo and Brazil, you know, in the mid-1930s by seaplane. I mean, we actually had them here in Ireland. Um, you know, our seaplanes were landing in, in Limerick. Uh, there's still a museum down there for it. Do you think that we've ever managed to um, come back to that sort of time where technology was rushing along and are, are we are we in a similar situation now do you think with technology yeah that's a really interesting question i mean I, i've just written an article uh for the smithsonian magazine which is the magazine of the smithsonian museum in washington that i can't really say what the article story is about because it's been published yet but 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 what i realized in, in that was there they are elements i'm really glad you mentioned this because there are elements of what is going on today that really reminded me uh, of the 90s, 20s and 30s, are lots of technologies, and in those technologies, lots of different configurations, you know, uh, of what they could look like. Lots of money is going into them, lots of egos, and also kind of geopolitics behind that. But no one really knows, you know, you know well, no one really knows which one's going to come up on top. And also, I think that people are well understand enough now about innovation to understand that it might be something that you know there's almost too much knowledge about innovation away because it might be something that uh that no one has totally dis- everyone has just totally disregarded that becomes the breakthrough innovation and and i think obviously text messaging was always a good example of that which was just a kind of almost a side function of phones no one had paid any attention to it and then it suddenly becomes for for uh, you know kind of the dominant form of communication so I think we were, I think in many ways, and I suppose drones are a good example of that. Great example, yeah. Yeah, Eva Vitol kind of uh, you know air taxis and that kind of all that kind of technology. Uh, probably space. There's lots of different ideas now in space rockets, space planes, you know, all these different things. So I, I think there's a lot of that around, and you also get the huge personalities behind some of this and, and geopolitics as well. I was just thinking about what you were saying there and I agree with you 100% because you know this on my kitchen wall I have like you know posters of these times they were kind of like advertising posters that you would see in newspapers and we have like the Normandy ship we have the one of the the German um, Hindenburg uh, airships then we have the Italian flying boats which went from Italy to to Brazil as I said and then we have one of the images from the Monaco uh, you know Grand Prix races and of all of those projects really you know the, the the ships as a as a form of transport are not as obviously not as used anymore and across transatlantic routes the air the um, airship has gone as we know and the uh, the flying boat has been replaced by the jet airliner so mm. do you think you think that we're going to probably see something like that as well where we see these technical innovations being surpassed and then kind of one big one taken over yeah i, mean, I, I think that's an interesting thing i i, I think Oh, I would hope so. I mean, if the logical of this would say would say yes, but but I think what's often missing from the discussion discussion now about technology in the future is kind of the impact of climate change, uh, and you know, and I mean, it'd be great to have uh, you know everyone flying in a new generation of supersonic airliners around the world or yeah. a hypersonic space plane that could, you know, sorry, a kind of space space plane which could land in London after three hours of taking off here, but. Uh, I mean, the sheer environmental cost in terms of the energy, the technology, the pollution of, of doing that is, you know, to me, almost inconceivable or totally inappropriate. So, so I, what I wonder is, is, is to what extent will those technologies now just be 
left for the super for the global elite. You know, you know, Booms Supersonic Airline is very much for the business market. Are they so? Are they going to be the ones flying in record time between between cities and continents, while the rest of us, uh, you know, perhaps have to go on a sailing ship? You know, uh, uh, or, or are we just going to have to travel slower? I, I, I mean. I could see in the future. I mean, I'm not the only person, to, you know, to think this. You know that, you know, airships might make, I might make a comeback because mm-hmm. if you think about the Hinde- Hindenburg and the Ralph Zeppelin, they're able to cross between kind of Europe and North America or South America in the three or four days. You know, you know, which is faster than a ship, just just about you know faster than the best line of the day. You know, and they and you can almost do that now in a very, very low carbon, low polluting way. So perhaps there's one future in where, you know, some of us have to go slower and some of us to go faster. So yeah. Maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing, Mark. No, no, I don't think it I think it would it could possibly be, you know, a very good thing. And there's certainly what hybrid air vehicles, the British I think you've got to say light and air manufacturer, are are certainly kind of trying to pitch their airship to do this slow travel between cities like Belfast and London over a short distance where you probably fast can compete because you can fly from the city centre, you can probably compete with air and to some extent travel and certainly ferry. So that's quite interesting. They've seen a, you know, there could be a business case there, but uh, whether anyone will, will back them is a different issue. The other thing I've been noticing has been there's a lot of hype about, and using the wrong term there because that's the actual term, hyperloop tunnels. I oh, mean, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, you and I are just normal people, but for you know a little bit more about it than I do. What do you think when you look at that project? Is does it look like you know one man's ego tie, or do you think it's something that could be viable? Yeah, I mean, it's, you've got to be so careful talking about Elon Musk. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not really. I, 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 I think we're just asking about what his ideas are because not every idea has yeah. been successful. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I suspect it's like you know, Isabel and Brunel. Not everything he does mm. was a, not everything he did was success. I mean, I think. Obviously, Tesla, SpaceX, such as SpaceX, are revolutionary in terms of the technology he's developed. Definitely, I I, I think hyper hyperloop is is a kind. Of, I was trying to make a pun about a dead end, but <laughs> I, can't, I don't know what a dead end is on, on the ground. Uh, you know, it is uh, you know is isn't such a good idea. Uh, I I think he's it's already been changed. From you know, f- from some kind of really ultra fast, from my understanding, from some really ultra fast passenger travel to car tunnel, and now I think it's even a passenger uh, idea for pedestrians. Uh, I, I I think it's a kind of an idea without a, a need for it. I mean, it, it's yeah. I, I think I think I think that's just hype, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't want to use that term, but it's kind of unavoidable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And if anything, if it was anything, it'd be for the ultra rich and be so divisive. One thing I'm fed up with with technology and the way it's covered is is the way we are tried to persuaded to worship technology like you know supersonic travel for business users, air taxis, you know, EV toll air taxis, as if any of this would actually be used by ordinary people. And I must have to say, I'm getting slightly fed up with that because, you know, you know, that's not the experience most of us will have. So it's like private jets in some ways, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the other way is that we have to look at it, I suppose, is the best technology, as you say, is the technology that's the cheapest and most accessible. And then I think it was a perfect example that you gave with the mobile phone and the text messaging. I mean, mm. like 
as you say, I remember actually getting my first text message. I can actually remember that. It was 1998. I didn't know what the hell it was. Somebody had sent me a text message about some work I was involved in. And I was going, how did that even work? Yeah. You know, it's just like when you look at it now, it's the actual way we communicate more. Uh, I, I even get people saying, they text me to say, is it okay if I ring you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm kind of going okay that's weird but yes you know whereas now when I first had mobile phones you know people just ring you and you just go oh yeah you can decide whether you want to answer it or not so I think um, the text messaging was a great example do we have anything to learn from the likes of Shackleton and Nobile and all those type of things do we we're obviously stepping into a new frontier here with space yeah. travel and obviously as well um, there are still peaks and still uh, goals on this planet that people want to reach I mean the likes of you know mountaineering and so on there are still challenges out there is the world not so uh, patient about these type of people anymore are they are they lost to the fast pace of life do they still exist well i well I think there's two issues there is exploration continuing on earth as it is in space yes it certainly is mm-hmm. what is the often what is the role of the explorer well, certainly in you could say places areas like uh, areas like uh, antarctica it is it's led by science. So you've got the kind of science ex- explorer scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way, I mean, like science was involved in the 20s and 30s. Nobody used science as excuse for his expeditions. And I would say excuse because I'm a bit cynical uh, about, about its use. But certainly that was one of the justifications. So excuse is a bit harsh. Yeah. One of the justifications for his expeditions. But I think there was a slightly different quality to how the scientists are leading exploration in places like Antarctica today but i also think many explorers you know it is still about the personal triumph but it's almost it's almost just it, you know there's an educational element to it there's a kind of uh, media entertainment element to it which perhaps isn't so different from the from the past but i guess it's hard to get the public imagination i suppose now because so many of them have so many records have been broken and, and so on uh, but, but that's still going on. I, I, I think the lessons from the, from these explorers isn't so much that we need to explore. I mean, it, I think there's a lesson about risk taking. Uh, I mean, the, the you know uh, the risks that these people were willing to take. You know, you know, w- you know, was crazy. Uh, I mean, from a modern 21st century perspective, you know, flying aircraft that have never been tested in and you know Arctic conditions before. You know, you know, uh, you know, it was, was crazy. The willingness, you know, this idea you could always walk out, even though that's probably your kind of sealing your, you know, in some cases it would be kind of a, you know, sealing your your fate, your life. Uh, seems very odd to us, and the kind of the casualness which they kind of were willing to, you know, risk their life. I guess. I mean, perhaps that's due to the First World War. And the, and and the carnage in the first world war, you know, and once you've seen that, you know, the value of life is less, you know, or perhaps it's just due to an age where people died much younger, you know, because because of it because of illness. But I think that's where, I mean, it's very important we do value human life, especially when you've got you know wars in Ukraine and things. But uh, you know, and I live a very safe life in Oxford, you know, but you do wonder whether sometimes we're far too cautious as a society, I guess, and as a, as, a, as a culture. I mean, the only person that I can rem- think of recently who's kind of got that sort of vibe and when, when he did what he did, the whole world watches, it was Felix Baumgartner when he went up into the balloon and, you know, he base jumped basically yeah. from, yeah. you know, space. I mean, um, I showed my kids that. Now, my kid, one is five and one is nine. Uh, I just showed it to them recently. 
And they were amazed at this. They thought this was the most amazing thing they've ever seen. I explained to them that this was actually a record breaking of a previous record, which has been done like back in the 1950s. Mm. They were even more amazed at that, that they actually said that it, it was done before. And I said, yeah. yeah. You know? So as you say, like it's, um, that, that is in itself was a forgotten story. It was only, you know, re brought to the fore when, when Boom Garten did that jump. You know, because yeah. a lot of people foolishly thought, well, no one's ever done this before. Well, actually, somebody did, you know, and he did yeah. it like long before most of the people on this earth were born. So, yeah, I exactly. mean, it's it's funny the way they kind of rehashed that a little bit, didn't they? Because, I mean, only Red Bull at the time could have pulled that off. And, 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 I, don't, and I don't want to be controversial, but I, I, I think Elon Musk, especially with his SpaceX, has an element of, of that as well as well as all the downsides we saw you know which i think illustrated in the book yes and fall down as well and, you know but when he landed his first rocket back on uh i think it was on, on the ship wasn't it yes, see, on the platform yeah on its legs yeah i mean, that, that was the most astonishing technological achievement yeah you know and uh, you know, and and that you know, and I read, read a bit about SpaceX, you know, and it was the classic, and you know, he put, he pushed boundaries, pushed up restrictions, achieved what people thought was impossible or very difficult. Uh, so, so to me, I saw a parallel, uh, you know, I th- I th- you know, w- with the research for my book, and I remember having my kids sitting my kids down, who you know, who I don't know, they must have been about they're kind of uh, eleven and nine now, so. They, a bit younger than it happened, sitting down and making them watch it to try to explain, you know, why, how significant, you know, that moment mm-hmm. was. So I, th- I think even though he's very, lots of people find it very unpleasant and I, you know, certainly wouldn't want to, you know, you know, he, he, that is something that has been truly remarkable, I think. In your book, the drive was coming from two elements. You had usually newspaper magnets who wanted yeah. to fund these sort of things because they wanted to get the story because yeah. you made more money in the newspaper business than you certainly do now. <laughs> yes. You had, the, you had the political side of it where you had really contrasting um, you know, elements of government. You had you know, the far right and then you had what was considered liberalism at the time. And these were contrasting elements. They were against each other. And the Soviets, and the Soviets. Yes, exactly, as well. You had, I was just about to say, and then you had the communist um, yeah. element coming up as well. So... In a sense, they were the key, the kind of puppet masters. And now the puppet masters nowadays seems to be commercial, more commercial rather than political, doesn't it? Because the political side is more, as you said, scientific based. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the political side is still there. And 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 I think for a long time it's been hidden. But I think we're seeing a bit more of it with concerns about, you know, say the American concerns about China. There's a bit more awareness now of a bit more pressure on technology companies, you know, who are you doing deals with, why. Uh, are you safeguarding your technology? Yeah. Uh, is, is this in our national interest? I think the last few years there has been. I think that's. I think that's started to shift up the agenda, and I think with conflict in Russia and attempts to, I suppose, weaken the Russian economy, uh, you know, you know that is going to become even more so. So I think we've had this wonderful, uh, wonderful for some period of uh, kind of, you know, where politics was in the background over the last since the Cold War. You know, and obviously there are many losers for the last twenty years as well, uh, and and I think uh, in in the future the politi- the political element is going to be become much clearer as there's much greater kind of competition again. It's funny. I remember seeing a film back in the late nineties. I think um, 
it uh, it had a Val Kimmler in it. It was called Red Planet. It wasn't a very good science fiction film. But one thing struck me when I was watching the movie and they, they got that right was that on their spacesuits, they had, you know, like Nokia, yeah. Microsoft <laughs> yes, on the badges on the side. And, I, you know, I remember the guys watching it with me and they were all going, that's mad. And I said, no, it's not mad at all. Yeah. I said, because that is exactly how they're going to fund these things. And now that is actually real life because, you know, they cannot get back to the moon without Musk. Now, I mean, he's he's not only has he got the technology that they need as well, but he's as you, he's self financing most of his things, yeah. and it's it's cheaper for the likes of NASA to go to the moon and ESA than it would have been if they tried to do it on their own. But but NASA is going to uh, is going to the moon uh, with, with his own with his own program, isn't it? And I suppose <laughs> that they've they've given the contract to Musk. That's true. Uh, yeah. So, so I suspect well now rather than just having yeah, you'll still have those badges on the astronaut uh, on the astronaut spacesuit. But I suspect now the Stars and Stripes will still be there and also the pressure will be on the corporations to f- advance American interests or Soviet interests or Chinese interests. You know, so maybe brand-led, called commercial-led, but there's going to be a lot of pressure behind the scenes, I think, to make sure you are not you are following Uncle Sam's interests. Where can we get the book, Mark? Because it's brilliant and I want you to tell me the uh, best place to go for the book. Local bookshop? If in America... Uh, you can get it in Barnes and Noble and lots of independent bookshops. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in I'm not sure about the situation in Ireland, but in Britain, oh, I got it in my local bookshop. So there you go. I, oh, really? Fantastic. It. Okay. Yeah, in Britain, you can order it through your local bookshop. You can order it on Amazon, bookshop.org, uh, and 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 so on. For some reason, it's not in the bookshops. Not in many bookshops. Mm-hmm. Well, we I got it within a week, so no That's problem at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah, uh, Custom House is the publisher, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the Custom House, I think they've changed their name now, but they're part of William Morrow HarperCollins, so I think you'll find it under HarperCollins. Great stuff. The Hunt for the Arctic Airship Italia N4 Down, that's the name of the book, guys. Please, please, please go out and get it. Trust me, you'll enjoy it. If you like anything like this whatsoever, this is the book for you. Mark, have you anything coming up that you can tell us about? Is there any, any got any ideas for any future projects? Yeah, I, I, well, I can't really tell you. I can't really talk about it because the pictures out there at the moment. I'm waiting. To, oh, so it's another book, yeah, is it? Yeah, ch- ch- checking my email all, all the time, and I guess it, it's going to have a very similar vibe uh, about it, but not. It won't be directly about Arctic exploration. So, but it have a very similar vibe. Basically, you're you're appealing to the same fan base, yeah, and, and similar <laughs> and similar issues, and hopefully a bit broader one, uh, you know, as well. Great. Now, on the subject, um, just as we end today's podcast, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment? Is there anything there you're you're peeking into? Oh yeah, I, 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 this is this is the bit where I, I all, my mind always <laughs> goes utterly blank. So yeah, I, mean, I think there's quite a few good books out at, mm-hmm. at the moment. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think I've been reading a number of books and TV shows. I mean, I mean, I definitely give a, a shout out to Matthew Green, who's is a writer of Shadowlands, which is about the uh, a journey through lost lost Britain. Oh, okay. When you say lost Britain, what does that mean actually? Uh, I, I haven't got this in front of me. I think mm-hmm. it's mostly. England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, but it's about looking at the cities that have fallen in the sea, the abandoned oh. villages. Wow! I think Matthew Green. I think Matthew Green does it really well. He looks at the history and tells some amazing stories of forgotten history, and also there's a travel element to it because he goes back to these locations right. as well. And he's a great writer for not going. You know, academics love to say this is the reason or this is the reason. He's a great writer for saying, well, perhaps it could be somewhere in the middle. It could be all all these different factors. I think that's that is. Uh, f- fantastic sounds good so that's Shadowlands is that the name of it yeah uh, if you want to read 
something more about about the poles uh, uh, there's a book called extreme north of cultural history by mm-hmm. by bruna and that's really interesting kind of into how we, into the building up of our imagination you know about about the about the pole especially the north pole Excellent. and because also one of the points i want to make in the book is you know is when when nobody I only give a little bit of space to this in the book i could have written for ages about this but when nobody goes up when when they fly up to the north pole in 1926 and 28 obviously they're not flying into blank canvas there's all these cultural ideas myths and stories about the area they're flying into and they're interpreting their experiences uh through that so those are kind of two two books that i've kind of been reading and also in terms of tv the, the dropout i mean there's one show i really enjoyed at the moment it's a dropout on the disney plus about the story about elizabeth holmes the founder of thanos or Theranos, sorry, not Thanos, <laughs> and it, and it is a fantastic series. Incredible yeah, it's acting. really good. Yeah, and a, and a very powerful story about innovation gone wrong. I guess. Yeah, that's a crazy story, isn't it? I mean, they didn't take yeah. much to make a movie on that one, Mark. Well, I think they already are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Mark. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today in a comfortable spot. That's okay. The name of the book is The Hunt for Arctic Airship Italia N4 Down. Go and get it. I know I've said it already, but it's an amazing book. It's a great book for your holidays. That's what I could say. If you've got a long journey ahead of you or you're sitting somewhere time to take in. And uh, I also want to say thank you to all of you out there for listening to us. And we will be back real soon. So take care, y'all. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,